We started in a book because uh, perhaps it's a book that you've read, but my guess is that um, Habakkuk is not one perhaps that you have either read before or read often. Although it's only three chapters, it's short. He is considered one of the minor prophets, not because what he has to say is not that important, really just because of the size. Uh, it's short, but quite profound. And as I've been announcing it for the, the past month or so, um, it's just a reminder that as we read this through in short little sections, be mindful of that all of the questions that Habakkuk asks of God are questions that we have asked of God ourselves. I guarantee it. And these are questions that are so relevant for even today, just as relevant as they were about 2,700 years ago when this was written. And so I do want to give you a little bit of background, and especially because we're starting the book, and I'll remind you of that as we, we get closer, but um, a little background about who he is and what he's writing about uh, and sort of his writing style. It's very unique, and so it's important that we understand that to help us have a context. But, you know, um, Habakkuk, his whole thing is that he questions God. Not necessarily his motives, although we can see that. He has these really raw and real questions of God. And so that's why the, the title of our series is For Real God. Did you ever just say that, like, for real? Or somebody does something unexpected and you're like, for real? But you know what? God is doing things that I think we, we don't expect. It was the same way 2,700 years ago when this was written. And it's the same today where we look around and we see so much injustice and immorality, and all those other words that start with I that we can come up with, and those things, and we look around and we say, for real, God, this is your plan? This is what you're allowing to happen? And, you know, so we see a lot of injustice in our world, don't we? You know, a few weeks ago, I was driving into New York City with my wife, Claudia. We are going to visit our oldest uh, two kids. They live in an apartment, in an apartment. They share an apartment in Manhattan. And uh, so we thought it would be a good idea on a Sunday evening during the summer to drive back up north to head to New York City. So anyway, yes, I know. Wow, right? And so, so of course, you know, I looked at Google Maps and it said an hour and a half. And that's good. But then when we got on the road, I looked and it had calculated for traffic and it said three hours. And I said, yes, well, that sounds about right. And so I started to get a little frustrated, of course. You know how it is sitting in traffic. Um, it's sort of like part of our daily routine around here. And anyway, so we're heading into the city and, you know, it's okay when you know the traffic's coming, it's okay. You can kind of be mentally prepared for it. We're going to sit for a while and it's all right. And so we were doing that, but here is, um, the thing that frustrates me. And, 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 and if you're with me, you can say amen to this too, but you're sitting in traffic, you're obeying the law, you're doing what you're supposed to. And then you see what happens is there's some really smart fellow who decides he's going to drive up on the shoulder because he has somewhere really important to go, right? And so he's going to get ahead of everybody because, of course, there is somebody up front ahead that is going to be willing to let him in because they're not paying attention, right? Don't we just love those people? Those are the people we should pray for, right? And so... And so you're sitting in the right lane and you're just saying, man, this is going to take me three hours. And you see somebody just zoom by on the shoulder 
and you think, what an injustice. Man, did you ever think, I know that you can all say amen to this. Maybe you don't want to admit it. Then you just think, man, I hope there's a cop up there. And I hope he's sitting, that he's sitting in that shoulder. And sure enough, you get up there and he's not there. And you see the turn and you see that car just turning. And he's just like, you know, a half a mile ahead. What an injustice. God, I'm obeying the law. I'm sitting in traffic. And here is this lawbreaker. And he is just, he's probably a Patriots fan too, is my guess. Something, I don't know, right? Is that right? So anyway, it's good. Definitely not a Steelers fan. Steelers fans would not do that. And so, you know, here he is. I knew it would work. I knew it would work. But I tell you, you know, it doesn't, look, it's a little thing in the scheme of life, right? But those things can really get under your skin. But here's why I bring it up. Yeah, it can be funny. We can think about it after. But at the moment, it's like a real sense of injustice in, in a way, isn't it? And you're just like, why do you hope that there's a police officer there? Because you want justice to be served, right? I mean, I think that deserves at least 10 years in jail, doesn't it? I mean, for doing that. But here's the thing. We feel a sense of injustice because a wrong has been done. And we believe that we are the righteous ones. See, we're obeying the law, doing the right thing. And somebody is getting away with something. Now, we know we're not perfect, but yet... Wouldn't we like to think that we're all supposed to be obeying the law? And if we are, then things are going to work out for us. But see, it's the same kind of question that Habakkuk has. Because Habakkuk is a righteous man. He is called a prophet after God. And in a few minutes, I'm going to read just the first four verses. That's all we're going to look at today. It's his opening question to God. But he comes before God and he says, God, for real? All around him, he sees injustice and immorality, deception, deceit, and greed, and violence, and bloodshed, and all of these things he sees, and he says, God, could this really be your plan? Could this really be happening? He sees wicked people prospering. He sees other nations and people in his own nation of Israel doing wrong, disobeying the law, not reading the Torah that they have, the Word of God, and still yet they're prospering. Does it not sound like most of the the book of Psalms? Well, see, what's interesting is that Habakkuk, actually, the whole book, the three chapters, kind of reads like a psalm. It's very unique and different from the other prophetic books because Habakkuk doesn't just proclaim and profess divine judgment on the people of Israel. That's what most prophets do, right? No, actually, Habakkuk, he wants it. He says, God, where is your divine judgment? And it's a Q&A. It's a back and forth between his prophet, God's prophet, and God. And so he asks these hard questions. You know, the one question that he's asking that I think it's a good way to sum it up that I I tend to ask myself, and I think you've all done it when you, you, you read the news, you watch the news, however you consume the news these days. I mean, oftentimes you just have to put it aside, don't you, because of all of the immorality and all of the greed and all of the politicizing of everything and all of that, and you, and you say, God, how much more can you take? Did you ever ask God that question? 
God, how much more can you possibly tolerate? Now, we know God is long-suffering. He tells us to be long-suffering. We also know the Scripture tells us that he's long-suffering and allow these things so that more people can hear the good news and the gospel. And so it's important that we don't just complain and question God, but we also say, yes, we've been given a task and a purpose, and so we are to bring the good news until God should decide to bring about the conclusion of his story. And we also know how the story ends. But see, Habakkuk, he's got these real questions that I think are relevant to us today. Specifically, he says to himself, how much more? can you tolerate? I've asked that of God many times. I mean, doesn't every generation feel like it can't get any worse? But don't you think that the very first Christians living in Rome probably thought, God, there's no way our world could get any worse. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're asking the same question. We're saying the same thing. There's no way there could be more depravity, more immorality, we couldn't be further away from God, but yet every generation asks that same question. But here's the beautiful thing about Habakkuk. One of the things is that he's very real and he's very raw, which is awesome because we need that. We need to know that it's okay to be like that before God. But God answers his chosen person. See, God answers. So today we're just going to look at his question. His complaint to God. And if you want to know how God answers, you've got to come back next week. See how that works? It works great. Or, of course, you could just read it if you want. But, you see, um, what's happening here is as he's asking these questions, God is about to do something. And we're going to see it in the way that he answers. And this book, just three short chapters, is full of so many things. It's, it's Habakkuk's questions. It's God's answers. It's another question. God then answers with a dirge. You know what a dirge is? It's like a funeral song. It's a song of lament. And God answers Habakkuk in song. But it's a mournful song. And then at the end, we see that Habakkuk praises God. So it starts with a problem. It ends with a praise. And that's always should be our goal and our focus and our hope and our prayer that our fears turn to faith, right? And that our hang-ups, they turn to hope. And that's what happens through this book. It'll take us about eight weeks to go through, but we're going to see it one step at a time. But this morning in particular, let us just do a little bit of background so we have some context and look at his first question of God, just the first four verses. So first, a little bit of background, and and then I'll read it. So Habakkuk wrote in a time of international crisis and corruption. So remember the Babylonians? Babylon, you've heard of them, right? And so um, they had just emerged as a world power. So during the time of uh, Habakkuk, uh, Babylon is just becoming prominent and important and powerful. Okay? So that's important to know. So, because what had happened is, at the time, Assyria, we've heard of them, you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and at one point or another, both of those pagan nations took the people of Israel and Judah into captivity. But what we're talking about here is the rise of Babylon. And so, uh, the Babylonians, or it's also, they're also called the Chaldeans, right, they're kind of interchangeable, they come and they usurp power from the Assyrians. So, Babylon is rising 
to power. And that's basically what had just happened and is still happening in the time of Habakkuk. Right? And so when they rise up against Assyria, the nation of Judah, remember Israel was split. The Jewish people were split into two kingdoms. You had Israel and then Judah. So Judah found some brief relief uh, by a wise and good and righteous king named Josiah. Okay? And so what happens is he is reigning and things are good. It's sort of like the calm before the storm. Right, because um, Assyria, who had been oppressing Judah and Israel, see Assyria had to put all of their efforts into fighting this uprising of Babylon, and so Judah, the tribe of Judah, right, they were kind of just like all right, they had a little reprieve, but then as Babylon took over, then what happened was they began to then bring their focus back to the Jewish people and oppressing them and bringing them into exile. And that was about what was happening. That was sort of the time of Habakkuk, right? So there was this new world empire of uh, Babylon that was stretching all over the world. And soon again, they would take over Judah once they were done defeating the Assyrians and take them into captivity, right? And that is uh, sort of the, the, what was going on in the world in Habakkuk's time. And so there was an international crisis, but there was a national crisis, Right, Because there was not only the Babylonians that were bearing down on the Jewish people, but there was internal corruption. So let's stop there for just one second. If you've read Habakkuk before, if you've heard sermons on it or read about it, it's absolutely true that we can take that and look at it and relate it to our concerns for our own country. The issues that we might have being Americans. But we also know that there are things going on around the world. Other nations. Some we are friendly with. Some we are not. But yet, what's really at the heart of Habakkuk is not necessarily the greed, the corruption, the violence, the immorality going on in the other pagan nations. It's what's going on at home. In the nation of Israel and Judah, his own people. Because if you remember, the Jewish people were both a nation and a religious group, an ethnic group. They were one and the same. And so when he talks about all of this immorality and injustice, remember that. His initial and, and most important context is his own people. So as we take the next eight weeks to look at this, we're going to often look beyond just issues we have with our country, perhaps, or other nations, but most importantly, what kind of things are happening in the church, capital C, our church, the universal church, and in our hearts, because we are called the church. See, so the prophet had all of these problems and issues he was bringing to God. First and foremost, it was about his own people. Because if you remember, God called the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to be a light to the pagan nations. He gave them the law so that they would not be uh, chaotic, that they would not be fighting against others. He gave them the law for all kinds of reasons. And the main reason was so that they would be righteous and holy in his sight. And in doing so, be a light to all of the unbelieving non-Jewish nations around them. And they were failing. So part of that context for us, church, is are we failing at being a light 
to the unbelieving people around us, the nations, our country, our community, our family? These are the questions that Habakkuk asks. So it's got different contexts, you see it? It's universal, it's international, it's national. But it's also to the church and then to us individually. So at the time, again, there was great unrest in Judah because they saw Babylon was about to come. And Josiah had been a good king, but he died. His son, Jehoahaz, rose to the throne. And in only three months of Josiah's son being on the throne, the king of Egypt invaded Judah. Egypt, nonetheless. He deposed Jehoahaz and placed his brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne. Now, Jehoiakim, if you know your Old Testament, was evil ungodly and rebellious and shortly after jehoiakim ascended to power this is when habakkuk wrote his lament over all of the decay the greed the infighting the perversion of justice and truth that surrounded him you know what we can look around church we can look around in christendom and we can look around in our nation and we can look around at the country's around us and ask the same questions we can look at the state of things and say god can this truly be your plan have you not had enough god how much more can you tolerate lord please come let the rapture be today i can't stand to see so much more of this and just simply asking for real god one bible scholar named j ronald blue he put it this way he says this godly men and women continue to ask similar questions in a world of increasing international crises and internal corruption nation rises up against nation around the world and sin abounds at home world powers aim an ever-increasing array of weapons at each other while they talk of peace world war seems incredibly imminent while the stage might be set for global holocaust an unsuspecting home front audience fiddles a happy tune. The nation's moral fiber is being eaten away. Personal pleasure is the supreme rule of life. Hedonism catches fire while homes and families crumble. Crime soars while the church sours. Drugs, divorce, debauchery prevail and decency dies. Frivolity dances in the streets. Faith is buried and even in God we trust, has become a meaningless slogan stamped on corroding coins. Does that paint a picture for you? Is that part of how you feel? But there's one thing I do want to highlight in particular that's so important through our journey of Habakkuk. Again, he lamented the injustice and morality of what was going on around him, but specifically his own nation. So we look at ourselves through it all. Because I think it would be wrong to take our study of eight weeks in Habakkuk and just come away every week and say, yeah, we got to fix the problems in our country. And that might be part of it. And asking God, God, would you bless our country? Would you bless those uh, nations around us? God, would you fix those things that are causing division and, and causing these issues? But yet, don't we need to start at home? And maybe it's home right here. And it starts right here. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. And so while our reference today is certainly our nation, the United States, there is deeper, more significant application for us as the church. 
This was written 2,700 years ago, so in the 7th century B.C. But yet today, we are called the church, the bride of Christ, the Bible says. We are saved and set apart by Christ to be a light and a hope in our corrupt and our chaotic world. So the questions that he asks go beyond just maybe our disillusionment with our own country and go to our identity as the church. Maybe we should be asking these questions about ourselves, about our churches, and the way that we represent God in our country. Why the infighting? Why the injustice and the irresponsibility? Why the immorality among believers? Why the corruption of so many church leaders? Why the greed? Why the hypocrisy? Why the abuse? Why the politicizing? Why the perversion of truth? Is that what's going on? Do we ask these questions and say, God, why? But let's not miss this. Habakkuk asked God how he could possibly use a thoroughly debased and depraved people like the Babylonians to bring about judgment on a people like Israel? See, that's an important question, isn't it? Think about it in our context. See, what's happening is Habakkuk is looking at what's going on among the Jewish people, his own people. But then he also asks God, and we'll see as we move through the book, he says, God, you mean you're going to use the Babylonians? to to come and conquer us and take us into exile, and that's who you use to judge us, your righteous people? See, Habakkuk is saying, we're your people, God. You chose us. Remember Abraham, your guy? We're all his descendants. We are your holy people, a holy nation, and you're going to use these depraved people like the Babylonians as your tool, as part of your will, to judge us, your righteous people? God says, yeah. But he also then says, as we'll see, don't worry, they'll have their day in court. They will be judged. That's a big part of what we learn from this book, these three short chapters, that God has a plan. He will have his way. But it might not be pretty or might not be the way that we want it to happen or in our time. But do we trust and have the faith that God is good? So, A little bit more on this. We really don't know much at all about Habakkuk the prophet. It says he's a prophet. There's only a few prophets actually in in the Old Testament where they're actually called a prophet. But we don't know anything really about him. Most of the other prophets, you know, if you've read them, it'll say something at the beginning about like who their father is or their mother or like the tribe they were with or kind of maybe what they did for a living. But it doesn't say anything about that, about Habakkuk. But here's one of the things we do know. At the very end, this will be in the last message that I preach on this. At the very end of the book, there's a little inscription that he includes, and it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So we're going to read this prophet crying out to God about injustice, and he says, this is like a song. And he ends with a song. So there's a a, a dirge, a, a mourning song, and there's also a praise song. But so what we do know is this, that it seems as if, that Habakkuk was a part of the leading of worship in the temple. Isn't that interesting? So he was a prophet, but yet he was also a worship leader. And so he played a significant role somehow in leading the people, his people, the Jewish people, in worshiping God. 
and it's, it, it, it just goes um, to, to fit right exactly with what we know about the history of Israel and the Jewish people, that they would often use worship and song and music to cry out to God. Again, did you ever read the Psalms? Right? Most of them written by David and just crying out to God about God, how could you be doing this? But they would put that to song. We don't really sing songs like that here, do we? God, what are you doing? Right? I mean, we don't kind of, how could you be done? We don't do that. Maybe we should. I don't know. Maybe at the end of this, we'll write something. It'll sound a little better than that. But is that interesting that the Jewish people would do that? That they would use their songs to cry out to God about immorality and injustice and God, do you really know what you're doing? Could this be your plan? And so it's interesting that as we read through it, remember that. That a little of what we do know about Habakkuk is that he helped to lead worship in the temple. He had a unique position in place to have the attention of his people. And so, you know, we don't know much about him, but yet what we do know is so profound and important, and it comes out as we will read through this book. So I'm going to read the first four verses and then talk a little bit more about how it's it's outlined and what we can learn from just these first four verses today, okay? So this will be our, our context for today. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, the first four verses, and this is uh, from the ESV. It'll be up on the screen for you. So it says this. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look at the word choices that he makes here all throughout. He talks about iniquity, destruction, violence, strife, contention, the law being paralyzed and perverted wickedness surrounding righteous this is the way he begins so these four verses church are a question to god they're a call out to god now just think i'm sure there have been times in your life where you have asked similar questions of god and usually it's because of something that's happened to you do you ever have a boss at work who doesn't recognize how you're following the rules you're doing the right thing You are doing your very best, and yet still your boss is deriding you and rejecting you. Say, God, where's the justice? Or maybe you see people at work, a coworker, slacking off and getting away with it. Just like I said with the police officer in the shoulder. Do you ever just wonder, man, I hope the boss walks in and just see them just sleeping at their desk. But yet, no. Often we see that happens. It's at work or maybe it's at school and there's the person next to you cheating, right? Cheating off of the next person. They get an A, you get a C. How is that fair? They cheated. 
We see that all around us in our own lives, in our own context. And Habakkuk is surrounded by it. But it's so severe. And I like the first question of verse 2. He says, how long? Two simple words. How long, God? How much longer will you wait? To have justice, how much longer shall I cry for help? Because you don't even seem like you hear. Again, he's being real, right? But I think one of the great things for us to learn is that we can be real with God too. Because God does answer him. He says, I even cry to you, violence, but you won't even save me or the righteous people around me. Then in verse 3, he asks, all right, God, if this is going to be the way you want it and the way you have it, then why even let me see it? He's even asking, he's like, God, you're going to let me see all of this injustice and corruption and immorality around me, but yet you're not going to do anything about it? How, How is that fair? Would you even just take it from me? Take it from my eyes? See, he was called by God to be a prophet, to proclaim this, message to the people but first he's asking god these questions he says why do you even make me see it and then you look at it and you do nothing how about that he's saying god i see the injustice and i want to do something about it you obviously can't even see it or even worse god you see what's going on and you choose to do nothing about it do you ever feel like that like god is absent like god is just kind of letting things be chaotic and run amok Because we feel like silence sometimes, like there's just nothing. God, when is it going to come? How long? How long are you going to let make me see this iniquity? You're going to see it and do nothing about it. It says destruction and violence, they're right in front of me. Strife and contention arise. Did you ever have that happen maybe in your own family? Strife and contention. Destruction of relationships. Betrayal say, but God, you know, you can do something about it. And then he says in verse 4, it's sort of his conclusion. Okay, God, you're going to look and do nothing about it. So I guess your law is ineffective. He used the word paralyzed in this version. We know what it means to be paralyzed, right? Like you can't do what you're supposed to do. So he says, I guess your law, the law you gave us, God, you can just picture him writing it. I guess the Torah, I guess the law, God, that you gave especially to your people of Israel, I guess it means nothing to you, God, that it's just going to be considered like nothing, like it's going to be completely ineffective. Is that the way it's going to be for real, God? And that's what he concludes so i guess the law is paralyzed and justice will never go forth did you ever just come to the end of your rope and you're just like well i guess god has forgotten about me or i guess he doesn't care about all these things happening around me in my life or around the world because i don't see anything changing you get up the next day and everything's still the same the news is even worse god where are you how many times have you heard people ask you a question oh you're a christian how can god Allow bad things to happen to good people. Man, we just saw the hurricane just rip through the Bahamas. You see pictures of people, just nothing left. And what do they say? God, so really? They'll look at you and say, oh, so you believe in God? What about this? And so sometimes we say, yeah, what about this, God? When is this going to end? When is this going to end? 
And so he finally says, for the wicked, they surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. See, we have the truth. We know that justice will prevail. We we see it in God's word. But isn't there a part of us that wants to see it actually come to fruition and actually happen? So he is asking these questions of God. Finally, we say, what is it that God will do? Well, we're going to see this when we get to chapter 2. But I'll give you a little preview. The crux of this book, really, if you want to just sum it up, especially God's direction and answer, is in chapter 2, verse 4. And you've heard it many times. The righteous shall live by their faith. We're going to get to that, spend a whole Sunday sermon on that. But if you wanted to sum it up, that's what God's answer is. Uh, Trust me. How about you keep being obedient and trust me? Because I am God and you're not. I feel like, I was thinking about this morning, like, wouldn't that be good to kind of put as your ringtone on your phone and just like have like somebody recording that? Like, I am God and you are not. Be a good way to wake up, right? Just remember, yes, I am not God. That is correct. I am not God. Right, because sometimes we act like that and we ask God. But he says he's got a plan and he's got a purpose. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11? God says what to the people of Israel? But it's applicable to us. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans for hope and a future. Right? So many of us have memorized that. We love it because we cling to that. That God says for, he says that to the people of Israel, right? Who are struggling. It's like the same thing that he's saying to Habakkuk here, but... We say it to ourselves, too. It totally applies. He says, I know the plans I have for you, and they're good, not evil. Don't worry about it. It seems like evil is encroaching. He says that wickedness surrounds the righteous. God says, I know it seems like that, but I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. There is a hope and there is a future. But what does he require of us, church, to trust and obey? Because there is no other way, see? But think about that for a second. In Jeremiah 29, 11, just stop and think about the first words. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. We, we usually just go, right, oh, okay, I know the plans. Plans are good. They're not evil. And it's for a hope and a future. But think about what he says. I know the plans I have for you. Stop there. Did you ever say that as a parent? Because your kids are like, why? What? Well, because I said so. Why? Because I said so. Why? They keep asking why. And it's like you say, I know what the plans are, and they're good plans, just trust me. But what are we saying? It's just like, I'm the one in charge, I know my own plans, so you can trust me because I'm the parent and you're the child. God is saying, for I know the plans I have for you. See that? He says, I know the plans that I have. You can almost see God almost smirking like, I know, because I'm God. The plans that I made, because I'm God, and they are for you. I know the plans I have for you. And that is how he is going to be answering Habakkuk. But let's just take, have a takeaway from this. The first thing is that it is okay to question God. It's okay to question God. If you get nothing else, a little bit of history, a little bit of background you might remember from today, just remember this, it's okay to question God in the chaos because we see it all throughout Scripture, and this is a prime example. 
It's okay when things are just crashing down around you, whether it's in your nation or your world or it's in your own family or it's at work. Say, it's okay to have this back and forth conversation with God. He wants that. He desires that relationship. And it's okay if sometimes you cry out to God, God, for real, this is what you want for my life. Just another thing. Another thing that's going to, I just got out from underneath that one thing, and now you're laying this new burden on top of me. You know, at the beginning when it says the oracle that Habakkuk saw, that word oracle really what it means is a burden. So it wasn't like a happy thing, even though the story has a happy ending. It says this is a great burden that God had given to him, the prophet Habakkuk, to see. And so he questions God, like, for real, you're making me see this, God? It's that oracle, that burden that God gives to the prophet Habakkuk. And, and, and he says, really, this is what you want me to see? And it looks like you're not going to do anything about it. But just remember this, church, it's okay to question. God knows we're going to doubt, we're going to question. It's okay for that. The psalmist did it, Habakkuk does it. It's okay to question God, especially in the chaos of life. It means you're spending time with him. It means you're being real with him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want the pretense and the pretending. Some of us, we we might be good at that and doing that here on a Sunday morning. How are you doing today, brother? I'm great. And you just had the worst uh, worst week ever at work. We can't fool God with that, right? God wants us to be real with him. So let's be real like Habakkuk was. And remember this too. We can be like that because he's a big God and he can handle your questions. We can't hide anything from him, but let's remember we can take it all to him because he is a big God. So he can handle you being a little angry and and handle you doubting him and questioning him. And he's a big God with a big plan. But finally, I bring our attention to this. When he says in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not for evil, for a future and a hope. He doesn't say that the road to the future and the hope is going to be easy. He doesn't say it's going to be so sweet and beautiful all the time. He doesn't promise that. He promises what the end result will be, and he also promises that he'll be there every step of the way, even when it seems like he's not answering, he doesn't care about all the greed and violence and injustice going on around you, or even in our churches. He says, just trust me. I know the plans I have. It might be a bumpy road getting there, but I'll be with you every step of the way. You know, it reminds me of what our Lord Jesus had to go through. Because we knew what the end result was of that, don't we? That we are offered a gift, and a gift is free. We are offered the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Aren't we? We say it all the time. It is a free gift, isn't it? That's the, that's the idea of God's grace. It's by getting something that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. So we live in light of that beautiful grace by getting something we do not deserve. And so we have been offered salvation through Christ who paid the price for us. But yet it cost him everything. So there was a cost for that. But Jesus paid that price. 
And so we know what the end result was. We know about the resurrection and Jesus now and glory with the Father. But what was the road like for Jesus to get there? We just went through the Gospel of Mark. You remember the last couple chapters? What was it like for Jesus to get there? Did not Jesus suffer through being disrespected and dishonored? Didn't Jesus suffer ridicule? Didn't Jesus suffer injustice? People misinterpreting what he said, causing division in his relationships, causing his friends to scatter. That ever happened to you? Somebody comes into your life and and just causes all kinds of division or you allow that to happen. See, Jesus experienced all of that. But yet he was the only one that ever lived a perfect life, the only one that never deserved any of that. And Jesus experienced all of that. His road to the cross was bumpy to say the least. It involved all of that. It involved persecution. It involved physical torture. It involved death on a cross. And Jesus, he walked that road in obedience to the Father, trusting him. Do you remember what Jesus said in the garden? He said, Lord, in that time, almost like Habakkuk, this is what you're allowing for me. Can you just kind of let this pass from me? But yet, not my will, but your will be done. And then he took that hard road, that road all the way to Calvary. We can't even imagine what that was like. But yet we know that the Lord Jesus says, Come to me if you're weary and if you're heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. He offers that to us because he went through it on our behalf. So anytime we have those questions, we can call out to God in the midst of chaos and say, God, why? How could this be your plan for real, God? This is what you want for me right now? Jesus did the same thing. God, this is what you want. He didn't understand it, perhaps, in that in his humanity. But he said, your will, not my will. And he walked that road to Calvary. And so whatever our road might look like, whatever injustices we might suffer through, whatever things we see going on in our own country or the world around us, and we cry out to God, let us remember that he has a plan and a purpose, and it's good, and it always leads to hope, and it always leads to a future with him. But yet, as it says, the faith of the righteous man accounts for much, or it says in Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by their faith. So do we have faith enough to trust in God that even in the midst of everything going on around us, that he is good and that his plans are good? And that if you cry out to him, he will answer you.